Welcome to Eureka Street Crypto. This is my anti-professional crypto channel. I'm just a barely sane dude who fell down the cryptocurrency rabbit hole. This channel is my fumbling attempt to communicate myself outside my own head about my journey in the crypto space. It is basically my brain dump. None of this is actual financial advice. Good morning, everybody. I'm Eureka John, and you're at Eureka Street Crypto Podcast or Web3 Podcast or whatever you want to say podcast. Um, it is December 31st, 2022, and this is episode number 495. It's my birthday today, and uh, no, I don't use birthday for any password recovery, um, but uh, yeah, so... Anyway, I'm not going to tell you how old I am, but I'm old enough, and um, I'm sure I've said it before on plenty of other earlier episodes. Anyway, um, yeah, I'm about pretty undoxed uh, type of uh, YouTube and Twitter person and Web3 crypto guy. Uh, yeah, <laughs> a lot of the, the people in this um, sector are very, very anonymous and um yeah <laughs> but not me yeah so yeah you, you could probably find me with a basic google search um so anyway um that being said yeah this is episode number 495 and i just kind of do this episode whenever i have some spare time now this is my personal video blog and um talking about all things web3 and crypto uh, because it is a subject that is really fascinating to me. And as we close out 2022 and go into 2023, um, I think it's all mutually agreed that 2022 is definitely the year of the bull market. Who knows? Uh, of the bear market. I'm sorry. Uh, the year of the bear market. And who knows where it'll go next year. Um, really, as I say on every show, I'm not in it for the speculation. I'm in it for the technology. I really am in it for the tech and um, everything that it can do for you, providing sovereignty and independence and autonomy in an era in which we're being pushed into a technological socialism. And as we're all being shoveled in and forced into doing everything online, um, well, that requires that we have to set up an online identity which is controlled by centralized sources we can no longer use cash anonymously we have to use things that are co controlled by centralized sources through the uh, uh, the likes of like mastercard and visa and american express and centralized banks and now they're wanting to put in a central bank central bank digital currency a cbdc and if you don't know what the difference between a CBDC and real cryptocurrency is, you better look it up because it's coming faster than you think. And especially with the advent of AI coming into play, everything is coming into a sort of singularity between blockchain, AI, internet of things. We are approaching um, a potential dystopia very, very fast. And if you don't know how learn how to use decentralized blockchain technology and how to stay decentralized and how to build in the decentralized world, you will become a slave to the social credit system. Anyway, enough doom and gloom. Um, I tried to focus on some of the fun things. And last episode, I talked about Nukes World. Um, at the very end, I ended on Crypto Kitties. You know, just uh, there's a lot of really fun little things coming out of this Web3 technology that I tried to focus on instead of all the doom and gloom. 
And I also don't focus on the speculation. There's a lot of people that, I mean, I originally got into it because I was trying to get some beer money and uh, I don't drink anymore, but um, it, it moved my, once I got a deeper understanding and went down the rabbit hole of, in, of the crypto and Web3 world and, and the possibilities and the, that it can provide in a digital world um, and the autonomy it can provide, you don't have to be a Luddite and you don't have to completely shun all things technological um, to participate in the digital world. You know, so uh, it, it, how can I say this? Okay. You can still participate in the digital world without becoming a slave and without going down uh, some kind of centralized controlled digital system controlled by an AI overlord. Um, there are decentralized ways to participate in the world. And if you hold the keys to your wallet, if you use things, the decentralized currencies like Bitcoin, which is digital cash, um, if you... You know, figure out a way to use decentralized identity instead of centralized ones. There are ways you can get around the digital world without being locked in this dystopia matrix, I guess. Yeah, that's, I think that's probably the best way that I, I know how to put it. I mean, there, there, somebody else could probably say it better. You know, in the meantime, as we you know, are trying to figure out how to navigate through this new world in which we're being ushered into... Um, I, I like to have some fun with it too, you know. Like I, I went and uh, you know built up a crypto kitty family with my kids um, last uh, during Christmas, starting December first to December twenty fourth. I'm a sucker for an advent calendar, so I went to Unlock Protocol and I you know followed each day and unlocked a new day of the advent calendar, and I got a cool little NFT for it, and that was you know. Pretty rad. I don't. Know, it's pretty dorky. <laughs> I wouldn't. I wouldn't call it rad, but you know, it was. It was cute. I guess you know. So yeah, and basically, yeah, it's an advent calendar that's connected to a DAP, a decentralized application, which is basically just a website that you connect your your crypto wallet to. And here it is, the little thing up there. And I connect to my browser wallet, which is a MetaMask. I hold the keys to that wallet. The, the private key and the seed phrase. So any browser I go into, I can import my wallet and connect to a Web3 website. And uh, that's the beauty of it. And if I, you know, if my computer crashes on me or if my phone crashes on me, all I got to do is just download the, the MetaMask app or any other, any other Web3 wallet and put in my private keys and my passphrase and voila. The, all my assets and everything that I own online pops up. So it is you know, a way to, no matter what device I'm using, always have my assets with me, my NFTs, my cryptocurrency, you know, whatever. Yeah, and it can be you know, anonymous if you want, or it can be as you know, doxed as you want. And doxed means your real identity. So yeah, all you have to do is, the, you're, you don't see it on your end, but the MetaMask window pops up a little window that says signature request. All you do is just sign it. Always make sure and look at the little details of what you're signing because we're still at the infancy of a lot of this technology and there are a lot of scammers and stuff out there. So you know, be careful. Um, you could get hacked and rugged and all that type of stuff. So anyway, yeah, see the little reindeer, the little Rudolph. Each day was a different colored one, and uh, you know, so I have all these NFTs in my Unlock Protocol keychain. Um, Unlock Protocol is pretty cool. It's kind of a way for content creators to create gated access to their content, and um, 
Yeah, you, you see, I have some friends on here too: Eric, Matt, Keith, Keith Axline, Crystal Street, Elton, John Rock. Um, so, yeah. So, I don't. I don't know. It's just a fun way to to do something. Uh, you can, like I said, token gate access to your content if you're a content creator. I've used the example, for instance, if I'm a, a, a club owner and I have a band playing, I can do a live stream and do NFT gated access to the live streams at my club. Um, and uh, that way people won't have to give you their credit card information and do all that two-factor authentication and setting up an account and all that type of stuff that just becomes a real pain in the booty. Um, all they do, ha all they have to do is just buy an NFT. And then they would, you know, like, a, like I just showed you, they would go connect their wallet uh, on the on your club website and the wallet would check do you have the nft for the agent orange show for instance and if if you have that that nft for let's say december 31st 2022 agent orange playing at the continental club uh yes i have that nft bam it allows you access to that live stream and voila you don't have to go out and hang out with all the drunks trying to fight traffic on new year's eve in downtown austin all you got to do is sit in the comfort of your living room and watch your favorite band with a couple friends and uh yeah you know and watch agent orange play and without having to give up all your credit card information and your personal information and then have them get hacked in some kind of data dump and uh, yeah, everything's compromised. And so it's quick and easy. And like I said, no two-factor authentication or giving up all your information. Um, so yeah, and uh, my friend Crystal Street here, here's her NFT and we all have unlock protocol memberships. Uh, she just created a server, a Discord server, testing it all out in which she airdropped us all, the people that are in her friend group, NFTs, access to her Discord server, you know, just to kind of test it all out. And uh, yeah, it worked. So, you know, I don't know. AI feeds off of data. You know, um, your data is food for AI, and which is all well and good, whatever. Um, <clears throat> And when people were creating Facebook profiles and Instagram profiles and Twitter profiles, they're giving up tons of their data. And every picture that they upload is all data that is collected. And that data is used to drive um, ad creation and to target ads to you. So you will buy stuff, right? And Or to create a reaction and to get clicks so that they can say we have a very active website you want to advertise with us so they can get more money more 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 money 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 that's what it's all about and a lot of these news websites they have to generate the clicks and um, the more clicks that they generate the more advertisers that they will get and they will get more money so the journalists can have their lives paid for right and uh, I've said this in the last episode as well, you know, uh, this becomes a problem because um, the more clicks that are needed, you know, you have to create content that stirs up those emotions, you know, the anger, you know, the, the you know, addiction, things like that. And um, <clears throat> a lot of times as well, the people that are sponsoring a lot of these journalism outlets and a lot of these projects and things like that. They may or may not want certain content on there. So you wouldn't want to put up content, stories, investigative feeds, investigative articles or whatever that might go contrary to the goals and motivations of the sponsor. And uh, that's an issue too. 
So it, it limits and it censors and it censors freedom of speech. And there's algorithms that produce this. And you know, in a, in, there's an AI as well that builds on that data that produces those algorithms. So very, very quickly, as you can, as you can possibly understand, it gets out of the realm of human, of human uh, censorship or human control very, very fast. And especially with the speed at which we're going towards AI and Internet of Things and blockchain um, and the algorithms kind of taking over. We are at the point, and especially with things like neural networks, where we don't even understand what's going on under the hood. It's really important to be able to have that data and to maintain control of that data because if you are in control of the food supply, you're in control of the population. And and then the same thing, I think, with AI. If you're in control of your data, which is AI's food, you are in control of AI. If you hold those purse strings to the data then AI will never fully control you um, it, because it can't. It has to buy that data from you. And if AI has to buy that data from you, then you, in a sense, are being given a UBI, a universal basic income, because every human being produces data. Every human being has unique data. No two human beings have the exact same data, not even twins. Every single choice that you make in your entire life is unique to you. And so some people might call you worthless. Some people might say that, oh, there's, there's nothing you know, valuable about you. You might feel that about yourself. A lot of times the worst talk comes from our own self-talk. And it's these demons inside of our head that tell us that we're worth nothing. Well, I'm here to tell you that, that you are worth something, like literally you're worth the data that AI needs for its food. And if you have control of that, then you can get paid for that. And so you have a choice as to whether or not you want to give AI that data and data in a web three world, which in which you have complete autonomy and control of your data, you would get paid for that data. And in a sense, you would never go hungry because you have a UBI. And so there we have it. This is the the one little thing, and it's a tiny thing, but it's a huge thing at the same time that allows us independence and freedom in this AI world is to have control of our own data. The cat opened the door, so I had to go push the cat out the door and, and shut the door. The cat likes to do that, especially whenever I'm recording. It just likes to come in and be like, Beep, push open the door and just sit there and stare at me. I'm like, cat, dude. Anyway, it doesn't like it doesn't want to give me the time of day any other time of day except when I'm doing this, and then suddenly it wants my attention. Uh, anyway, so yeah, I, like I was saying, you you are unique and you have very unique data, and AI at this point because AI could never really function before on the scale that it is beginning to now because we did not have big data. But now that we're developing these IoT devices, which is Internet of Things, which are sensors in every single thing that you and I do and own, like in our cars and our microwaves. I don't have a microwave, but in our cars and our ovens and our in our thermostats and, you know, even in our clothing, you know, it's all transmitting data. And so every single thing you do is producing data in your iPhone and all that stuff. And that is big data. And 
before we had no way to transmit or collect or analyze or do anything with that data. Well, now AI is at the point now where it is finally able to process that big data and it is starving. It needs all the data that you can give it. So uh, we're just giving it away for free. And every single piece of data that we give away for free is a little bit of our personal autonomy and freedom that we are giving away because we have not established an infrastructure or a way to set up uh, a digital identity that is decentralized that will be able to collect that payment for our data. You see what I'm saying here? And so therefore we're enslaving ourselves and we're just giving it away and we're giving AI this big advantage and all this free food to just grow and grow and grow and grow on itself. But if we are able to, to create these, these, purse strings that we can tighten and say, ah, 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 you don't get my data unless you pay me for it. Then suddenly AI has to be like, oh, okay. Um, all right, here, we have a token. We'll give you this token. And um, that token will you know, be redeemable for any type of good or service that you, that you want or, or can ever need. Okay, we'll pay you for your data. And therefore, AI and human beings can live in harmony. And um, the moment that AI starts to abuse or, or oppress or make bad decisions that don't go for in favor of human beings in order to optimize, yeah, because in an AI's mind, humans are not the most, AI could possibly destroy humanity in the name of optimization, right? Um, but it can't destroy humanity at some point because humanity is the source that produces its data, i.e. its food. So, yeah. Um, anyway, um, I don't know. It's, it's all super interesting to me. And this is right now at the crux of where we have our autonomy. Um, I was going into some interesting websites. I was going in LinkedIn, actually. Um, you dog on LinkedIn all you want. And I, I dog on LinkedIn every day. But uh, LinkedIn, you know, if you follow the right people, there's some really interesting articles that people post about blockchain, Web3, and AI. Um, here's, here's a post that I came across. Chat GPT will kill Google. Google missed the AI wave. RIP Google. And he puts that in quotes. It says, Sharon Singh. Um, it's S-H-R-E-Y-A-N-S. And then Singh, S-I-N-G-H. And he's a computer science writer. Um, and he says, this point of view is wrong, that chat GPT will kill Google and Google missed the AI wave. Um, chat GPT won't be able to kill Google search because, all right, so people say that chat GPT and Google, um, it, it, chat GPT is AI and it's going to make Google irrelevant. But he says that's not true because if it isn't connected to the internet, chat, chat GPT doesn't know that Argentina won the FIFA, the World Cup, or Russia attacked Ukraine, right? Um, because it's a closed system. Two, it often gives the wrong answers. Three, the main reason it's very expensive to search on chat GPT compared to search engines because it's running an AI is very expensive. Well, okay, for now, running an AI is very expensive. And then uh, Google's not an idiot. Google hasn't missed the AI wave. There are several AI models like Lambda, BERT, and BUM, which are equal to or better than chat GPT. So why hasn't Google released these AI to the public? Um, that's because AI, both chat GPT and Google's AI, is wrong a lot of the times. 
Chat GPT is new to the market, so they can afford to be wrong. But Google has a reputation. They can't launch a product with which gives wrong answers. Media will kill them. That's why Google is working on improving their AI instead of launching it quickly. Um, so yeah, I mean, it says follow Sharon Singh for more insight, insights like this. Okay, so yeah, uh, um, he brings up a good point. You know, Google AI is still, I mean, AI right now is still in its infancy stage. And if it's already this far progressed, who knows where it's going to be, even by the end of 2023. But ChatGPT is the new uh, AI model that is out. Um, I went to, let's see here. I went to openai.com and took a look because I have not used ChatGPT yet. Um, and so blog. Chat GPT, uh, optimizing language models for dialogue. We've trained a model called Chat GPT, which interacts in a conversational way. The dialogue format makes it possible for Chat GPT to answer follow up questions, uh, admits its mistakes, challenges incorrect premises, and rejects inappropriate requests. Chat GPT is a sibling model to Instruct GPT, which is trained to follow an instruction in a prompt and provide a detailed response so it says try chat gpt so i did and um i i had to i had to log in and i had to connect an email account a centralized gmail account as, as well i had to create an account i had to put in my phone number i had to have the two-factor authentication to verify and then finally i so i had to give up a lot of data you know my birthday and all that stuff in order to be able to use this open ai program now if it was truly open source you wouldn't have had to 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 do any of that stuff but uh there there it is so anyway here's the new chat window um, this is what chat gpt looks like um and it allows you to ask any example, any any questions, examples. Explain quantum computing in simple terms. All right, so the capabilities. Remember what users said earlier in the conversation. Allow users to provide follow-up corrections and train to decline inappropriate requests. And then the limitations may occasionally generate incorrect information, may occasionally produce harmful instructions or biased content, and limited knowledge of world and events after 2021. All right, <clears throat> interesting. All right. So somebody had to originally program this AI, but with neural networks under the hood, the original programming starts to take its own life and take on its own life, not take its own life. <laughs> the chat GPT committing suicide. No, it doesn't. All right. So uh, I will go ahead and ask a question is skateboarding a crime. All right, let's see here. Is skateboarding a crime? In general, skateboarding is not a crime. It is a recreational activity that is enjoyed by people of all ages around the world. However, like any activity, there may be specific laws and regulations that govern skateboarding in certain areas. For example, some cities or towns may have ordinances that prohibit skateboarding in certain areas, such as on sidewalks or in business districts. It is important to be aware of and follow any laws. All right. Uh, all right. So that's what it generated for me. Can't, so and, and so going back to this LinkedIn article, Sharon Singh says, chat GPT will kill Google. Google missed the AI wave, RIP Google. And that's in quotes. And he's saying that that point of view is wrong because a lot of the answers that come out of there are wrong. One of the things about that skateboarding is a crime quote, because right? skateboarders always say skateboarding is not a crime, right? And it's missing the entire cultural context of that phrase that I put in there is skateboarding a crime. 
it is literally looking at it from a legal point of view. And there is a whole lot of cultural, subcultural context to that phrase. And so it did not even touch on anything like that. And so, yeah, sure, skateboarding can be a crime. And in general, skateboarding is not a crime, but you have to adhere to all laws in local areas. Yeah, that's that's how a robot would answer that question. Um, but yeah, <laughs> so there is a lot of work to go. There's a really interesting article. I follow this author um, called uh, Saffron, and she has a blog on Substack called Under the Rose. But anyway, um, Under the Rose, I've subscribed to this blog. It's a really good blog, and it says, what is the point of making intelligent agents? There is a difference that I did not think of. You know, first, there's ChatGPT and Google that I did not really know that much about ChatGPT versus Google, and I tried it out, and you can kind of see the difference there. Um, Google produces results that let me pick possibly culturally relevant results that humans have created, where ChatGPT is just an AI bot that tells me you know, in, in, in their point of view. So this kind of goes into the difference between an intelligent an AI intelligent agent, and then HCI, which is human-computer inter interaction. So she says, and I'll read some of these, this article. Um, it's strange to me that AI and human and HCI, human-computer interaction, as fields are not more connected. AI loosely is the network of creating and using intelligent algorithms, while HCI tries to think about how we can use our algorithms in better ways for people. This work seems highly complementary, although at times antagonistic. While HCI seems to do this much more, I think it's healthy for AI people to be questioning what we are creating with our, our intelligent algorithms for. All right, so this post is kind of an anti-AI one. It explores the lack of affordances and disempowerment baked into the premise of creating of attempting to create intelligent agents. So if you've gone to any type of airline website or customer service website, um, even going to try to get a business license, you know, LLC, uh, you'll come across all these intelligent agents you know, that pop up. When it used to be like a glossary of type of questions, FAQs, for instance, and there's still a lot of FAQs and stuff. And I, one of the first things that I do when I go to a website is go to an FAQ, frequently asked questions, and I try to figure out, all right, what are some of the most common questions for this? And if I don't quite grasp a concept, looking at the common questions helps me. But a lot of these websites have dropped the FAQs and have dropped the glossaries and all that type of stuff, and they're just putting these little chat bots in there. And it kind of seems like a lazy way. Um, so let's see here. <clears throat> so according to Jaron Lanier, the idea of or Lanier, the idea of intelligent agents is both wrong and evil. To him, believing in autonomous software agents both dumbs down the human and obscures the feedback required for good software design. It dumbs down the human because this is a way of using a program where you cede your autonomy and act like the reduced human model that the software expects from you in order to successfully interact with it, effectively disempowering humans bit by bit. And now when I put in that example, is skateboarding a crime? It literally reduced my intelligence to the point where it's only thinking, it, it only thinks that I'm thinking about the legality of it and not the entire subcultural context of that phrase skateboarding is not a crime that has become a bumper sticker a t-shirt it's the search for animal chin and bones brigade it's a whole lot of things beyond just skateboarding being a crime 
All right. So it obscures the feedback required for good software design be, because this choice to separate and conceal a piece of code as an autonomous agent makes it impossible to meaningfully alter or make demands of the underlying mechanics of the system. So if that chat, if AI, if chat GPT was the only source that I had to ask that question of skateboarding being a crime, that is the only answer I would get about the legality of it. So one good thing about Google or any other type of search engine, it provides me a, with a plethora of a bunch of different answers that humans have created, different websites that point to all the keywords and all that stuff, gives me a lot of different responses. Um, so. Um, Lanier works contrasts the work of creating an agent with the alternative of making better user interfaces that don't rely on the illusion of software agency. Agency claims are the work of lazy programmers. Writing a good user interface for complicated tasks like finding and filtering a ton of information is much harder to do than an, an intelligent agent. In other words, AI is a lazy substitute for better interface design, work that is the domain of HCI. But it also is concerning from an HCI perspective that cares about human autonomy and empowerment. So anyway, so she's bringing up this example um, and she uses the World Cup as an example. Um, I'll let you I'll link this article in the video description. So. All right. So let's see here. Agents are annoying interfaces. And when you're dealing like a, the, the airline website and she goes through an example here that I'll read. Yes, they're freaking annoying. So let me advance the following arguments in this piece. For any tool, a good user interface is extremely important. Creating an intelligent agent is a way of creating an interface that seems to be flexible, but actually turns out to be impenetrable, difficult to control and autonomy seating. So the more that these agents are being plugged into to websites, the less options that we have in that website. Like the most options that we have are if we were to actually download, you know, data, raw data and code, you know, but most people can't read raw data and code. So they need some kind of intermediary, a website that knows how to process that. And that's the next level up. And, but the levels are being stacked on top of each other to the point where we're only given the option as an interface of an AI agent and that AI agent is so dumbed down to the point where it becomes where where it chokes off the actual data that we need. So agents, if well-designed, might make things a little faster to execute surface information from a messy data soup a little more readily and to raise the floor of interactions, maybe, but they often lower the ceiling of what a user can do. So airline website chatbots are absolutely frustrating because they try to steer you in certain directions that you may not want to be steered in or that you don't want to be steered in. So you make a mental model of how the software works and try to hit the right keywords. You're going to game your chat agents because they're just pieces of software in the end, however obscure and intelligent in quotes, the designers try to make it and you have to dumb yourself down and to say things as plainly as possible. I mean, how many times have you sat on the phone on one of those with one of those those phone answering services at like the DPS or your your phone company or utility service and be like, agent, no, one, talk to an agent. You know, you're just like, <laughs> need to pay bill. I'm sorry, need to contest bill, need to ask question. I'm sorry, but did you say, you know, so you have to dumb yourself down and say things as plainly as possible to make the agent behave intelligently, intelligently. You lower yourself just so the agent can do its job properly. I had an interaction with a chat bot on the play, uh, which is a, a, an Icelandic air website um, recently where not me, but the, the, the author where I was 
trying to get a refund on my flights. And so if you have like a particular circumstance that needs to, to really be looked at, you have to talk to an agent because they have to possibly look at some order history and all that stuff. Anyway, the agent kept saying nonsensical things. Uh, for example, uh, recommending, let's see, she got, she got, rec <laughs> okay, so, uh, let's look at it here. It's almost been almost 20 hours and the AI agent says it's 11:44 a.m. and she said I already filled out the service form and it says you can become more healthy and by exercising regularly and eating nutritious food. <laughs> and then <laughs> yeah, okay. She said you need to get back to me a ASAP. And then she, then she said then it says, I'm sorry, my answers are not helping you. Yes, you're being entirely useless. And the AI says, I'm definitely not useless. Approaching me with challenging cases is something many of our clients have no problem with. Um, so, yeah, it's just exact. This is the type of stuff you get with AI bots that are putting you in your as an individual and in, lumped into a general median average expected response from a, a group of human beings of what it expects or the way it wants you to go. So it's usually better to get an airline employee on the phone. But the only reason an air, airline employee can solve your problem and you can't is because they have a better interface than you, the HCI, the human computer interface. The representative doesn't have to talk to an intelligent, in quotes, chatbot. They can just update your records in the system. Calling an employee is better than using a chat box because the call is a proxy interface to the actual interface you want to get to. The flexible booking system that they, that they but not you, are allowed to have access to. So, considering the affordances, it's a key concern of HCI and other designs, of different interfaces, is vital to understanding why agents are the most annoying one here. An affordance is an it, it's a privilege it's an action opportunity possible an affordance is an action possibly possibility in the relation between the user and the objects agents obscure and limit the scope of your action possibilities so anytime that chat bot pops up or you uh call your utility company and that automated voice comes up and makes you choose between options it limits the possibilities of what you can do. So they they limit the scope of your action possibilities. It's completely inefficient and potentially impossible to discover what the chat bot is going to let me do or not do when I open up the chat box or whenever I'm on the phone and it gives me those options. Rather than and sometimes it'll just put you in this circular loop and it's just so frustrating you hang up. So rather than providing me with a menu of options, I'm given a blinking cursor. I'm prevented from knowing my affordances. Remember when you could rebook your flight yourself uh, on the perfectly good GUI of the airline's website before they remove that functionality with one hand and open the other other palm and ta-da, a shiny new technology of an intelligent agent. They're like, oh yeah, we use AI. Here you go, it's beautiful. No, uh, part of the substitutions of chatbots for such customer service tasks is actually because they don't want it to be easy for you to do inconvenient things like ask for your money back. They don't want to give a refund. It's like pulling teeth to get a refund. Hey, yeah, we'll give you a store credit. No, I don't want store credit. I want cash. You know? But anyway, I, I digress. <clears throat> These software agents are obnoxious, banal, and intransigent. I don't know what uh, intransigent is, but uh, I get the idea. We, we basically all know it. 
Even when agents get super intelligent and sophisticated, they're going to be extremely annoying. In fact, more intelligent agents might become even more annoying just to make sure you don't get your money back, right? These in interfaces are biased. They make assumptions necessary to generalize new situations, but you as an end user don't know and you can't find out what those assumptions are. Agents generally try to steer you in the intelligent uh, in, in quotes, perhaps better seen as equivalent to what the company wants you to do directions rather than stay minimally neutral and flexible so you can act upon your own intentions and directions. They might contain a model of how you, the software user, is likely to behave. I'm sure they've set up their flow charts, you know. Um, all software designers have flow charts, but an AI would create its own flow chart based on big data, right? And we're coming back to the beginning, but necessarily in big data in which you should definitely have control of. Right, So they might contain a model of how you, the software, is likely to behave, but necessarily this is an, an approximate reduced model of you. It's a dumbed-down version of you. Often these models can be easily found to be outright incorrect, but if not, they often design for the median case. And while fine for most use cases, don't expect or permit you to be the most interesting outlier version of yourself. These biases are opaque and hard to push back on as they get increasingly more intelligent and obscure. As the AI hype swells, it's likely intelligent agent interfaces will start to become the only way to interact with much software. So you remember when you used to be able to download the CD discs and the CD-ROMs or just, you know, not even download, get in the mail, the, the actual software. So if you ordered Photoshop, you could have Photoshop on a disc and you could take it from computer to computer to computer. And uh, yeah, the, in order to prevent pirating, they've created these cryptographic keys and all this other stuff. And now to where before you could download the software and now you don't even get to download the software. Everything is like a subscription model where you pay monthly for, for instance, a Photoshop subscription or a Pro Tools subscription and stuff like that. And they are making so much money from that. And they're getting to collect a bunch of data from you as well. So, <clears throat> yeah. Uh, so, um, as AI hype swells, it's likely intelligent agent interfaces will start to become the only way to interact with much software, unless legislation require companies to provide an alternate pathway, which would be cool, I think. Even if they do, the alternate pathway will likely be, be either only accessible when the agentic interface fails, not as an option on par with the agent interface, or obscure. As an example, tax software is legally supposed to be free in the U.S., but TurboTax has fought to obscure and hide free tax filing software for decades. Users are forced to use agents, which will resort to the irritating task of gaming agents everywhere. And uh, yes, so tax software is a perfect example. Have you tried to do your taxes outside of that tax software? It is a nightmare. So there's all these intermediaries in there, or the, there's an entire industry based on that, or things like um, uh, healthcare, for instance. Have you tried to do all the healthcare stuff completely free through the government websites, it is nearly impossible. So there's all these, there's an industry that has grown based on how to navigate through all this type of stuff. You know, so, and the same thing with, with even things like the criminal justice system, you know, having to, to steer around and through child support type of stuff or, you know, um, charges against you, possibly you got a DWI, for instance, or DUI, or and having to navigate all that court system free using court appointed attorneys and everything that'll just land you with hefty fines in jail, have to take off work to meet court cases and all it is, it is nearly impossible. So yeah, there's just a lot of different things that if you use 
the, the free system, it's just not going to work. So they create these agents as intermediaries that you have to pay. Well, okay, you don't necessarily have to pay AI as agents, but um, you're paying them with your data at this point, you know, and so, and you're getting a dumbed down version of it. So there's, there's anything that is open source becomes convoluted and, and, and complicated. And so all these intermediary stacks get built on top of it. <laughs> and then it obscures the actual free part of it to where it's almost unusable. So anyway, I will skip down to some of this other stuff because it gets kind of uh, under the hood uh, or not really under the hood, but uh, you know, it just, it gets in the weeds about some neural networks and stuff like that. Um, so if you're really interested in that type of stuff, this is a great section of the article to, to do that. But for the, for the purposes of this show, I'm skipping down here. They're talking about large language models and neural networks. Um, and yeah, so anyway, uh, I do want to talk about this here. So why have developers not outgrown the command line interface? And this is an important question because we still on all com computers, thank God, have the option to go to the command line interface, the CLI um, and or Linux and things like that and Unix, uh, but the, rather than Windows. And part of maintaining your autonomy and freedom is breaking away from Mac and Windows and using Linux, you know, and I, I've been poking around with that myself. So why have developers not outgrown the command line interface? Because of its affordances. Because the actions you can take with a terminal, which is the command line, stack up to highly sophisticated pathways, and the ceiling of what you can do with a command line is very, very high. It's repeatable and debuggable, and it's not subject to inscrutable logic. It makes few assumptions, and it's an incredibly flexible and powerful interface. So you think with just a black screen with a little cursor typing is just so basic. It doesn't have any graphics or anything like that. But if you know the commands, you can do virtually anything on a computer. So it's powerful, general, flexible, and, and reliable non-autonomous interfaces like the terminal or a hammer or Photoshop. They set the ceiling of what you can do to almost infinity. So you beginners can use them and so can experts. These tools don't cap the skill set you can wield or gain such that you have to switch to something else entirely if you want to keep improving or do more advanced things. Have you ever played some kind of stupid game on your phone and you just get to the ceiling of it and you're just like, all right, this is dumb. I, I can't believe you know, I downloaded this and this is, I, I can't improve on it. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, you, know, it, you hit the ceiling of that game. So, uh, and you have to switch to something else. So yeah. Uh, or if you've used some kind of uh, drawing program, have you used paint on your computer and you've gotten to the point where you're using paint and you've gotten to the, to the ceiling of that, that, uh, program and what you want to do is not available on paint. So you have to go to another program in order to use some more advanced tools. So yeah, your skill set outgrew what the program could offer. And the, these agents, same thing, you know, or your particular circumstance, your uniqueness has outgrown what that agent could offer. So these tools don't cap this. So things like um, the terminal, you know, the command line interface or a, a hammer, just literally a hammer. These tools don't cap the skill set you can wield or gain such that you have to switch to something else entirely if you want to keep improving or do more advanced things. And the thing is, innovations happen near the ceiling. I think it's concerning that some are trying to sell intelligent agent interface as the only interfaces of the future. This seems to be implying that in the long run, we won't design for the high skilled outlier creators 
creations that drive the world forward. We hobble human creativity and potential when we don't try to create interfaces that experts won't outgrow. That's right. Many of these concerns hold much less if people are writing their own agents. So people should be allowed to write their own agents, like uh, scripts. You know, you can write your own scripts. Uh, but that seems like the exceptions to the rule and the specialized consumer producer model of the world we live in. People will be, in general, writing agents to be used by other people designing an autonomy that is difficult for the user to penetrate. So people should still be allowed to write their own programs and own scripts. But the more we rely on AI, the more those doors are closing and the more that we rely on AI agents and AI writing its own code, the further that will be detached from humanity for humans to be able to understand the code, to be even be able to write their own code anymore at some point in the near future if this continues. <clears throat> so, yeah, we got to keep that door open. People in, will be in general writing agents to be used by other people, designing an autonomy that is difficult for the user to penetrate. And in all cases, by definition, it is impossible to exert full precise control over an agentic inter interface because agentic by an agent interface because the user must cede autonomy to interact with an agent. So anytime you interact with a chat bot or some kind of agent or on your phone, um, on a phone call, you are ceding your autonomy to interact with that agent and you're giving up your data. And that's perhaps more fine if you have fine grained control over the agent and you can tweak it every few weeks, but it's less fine if it's a proprietary product. And again, I go back to Windows and Linux. You know, Windows is a proprietary product and that limits certain things you can do with a computer. Linux does not. Um, so this is the case, this part of the case why um, large language models and other transformer-based neural networks aren't going to replace all jobs soon. Many experts are unlikely to use tools that are high variance and unwieldy and difficult to integrate into any extended workflow. Yep. So here's the caveat. Of course, a variety of information and affordances are useful. Large language models are great for some use cases, but natural language can also be a terrible interface. Imagine a chef learning an advanced knife technique from chat GPT instruction. Slice the onion in quarter centimeter plus minus three millimeter pieces with your hand in a sort of rocking motion, but almost pulling. No, not like that. See, a chat GPT can't do that. And even if it's allowed to link to corresponding GIFs that could show you, it would not be ideal. So for some applications, some people might really benefit from expressing their intentions and words and others may really suffer. The key is choice. It's good to have multiple interface in the same underlying code. This is why crypto and Web3, in my, I'm added, I added Web3, is interesting. As permissionless decentralized computers, that's a really flexible and understandable interface. It is understandable, trust me, once you get it. Say I put a social network protocol on the blockchain, right? And anybody can read the code and augment it with applications on top. Someone can build an intelligent inter agent on top of that, that on top that surfaces suggested profiles. Someone else can build a GUI, a GUI on top of that, that manages analytics and posting, kind of like a Hootsuite and other Twitter clients. But the difference is that anyone can access the underlying code if they want. You don't need to rely on a fickle API or obtain developer access to make your own interface or to understand the mechanics of the system. Because right now, all the algorithms on Twitter are completely closed off and locked away and only a few people have access to them. So people can't build on top of Twitter. And um, yeah, so what you see is what you get with Twitter. And you know it can be at this point a, a dumbed down at best and corrupted 
an evil, at worst, um, uh, algorithm that is is controlling your very mind. So uh, she says, I'm not a fan of inscrutable boxes that purport to be magic and intelligent, but actually break down in it, but actually break in a bunch of ways that are frustrating for users to do, to try to deal with. I'm a fan of trying to advance the R and D of convivial tools. Ones that give users the permission and ideally also the ability to solve problems for themselves. I think, though, that really good user interfaces are really hard to design and they're not as sexy to do as trying to make intelligent agents instead. Yeah, so, you know, all the buzzwords and all the hype want to go towards these intelligent agents. You know, you have the slick salespeople at the conferences trying to sell how amazing their AI agent is and wowing the, the, the potential buyers of this stuff, the people who are building the software and selling the software. Don't believe the hype, right? Don't don't believe the hype. Um, so, anyway, that's my spiel on AI, on autonomy, on data, on owning your data, on AI agents, on uh, being able to maintain um, access to source code and to being able to see the raw data and see the source code and see everything that's going on with the algorithm, to be able to own your own data, to have control of that, and uh, to, to have control of the food supply for the AI algorithms. All right. Anyway, that said, um, yeah, I think this will be the, the year of AI um, coming up in 2023. It's going to be interesting to see what happens. Um, I'm, I, I don't know if I'm stoked or not. I guess we'll find out. You know, uh, Will this be a bull market year as well for the, for the crypto market? I don't know. Uh, I mean, it doesn't really matter to me at this point. I'm so neck deep in it. Um, anyway, I hope you guys have a good New Year's Eve. <clears throat> um, yeah, stay safe out there. And uh, yeah, have fun. Later. Thank you for making it to the end of this program. If you actually like this content, give a thumbs up. And if you want to hear more, just hit the subscribe button. I'm available on YouTube, Odyssey, and BitChute, and on all the major podcasting platforms in audio version. Spotify specifically, if you would like to follow and leave a review, that would help a lot. I am also available on Twitter at EurekaJohn1. That's E-U-R-E-K-A John, J-O-H-N, and the number one. My DMs are always open. Feel free to shoot me a message. Thanks again.